Good morning, church. Um, this last, well, last week I was in uh, Joburg for the Solar Five conference. Uh, it was a, a time of uh, great challenge and refreshing. Um, Solar Five is the association that we belong to. We're a member church of that association. And so I just want to thank you for allowing me that opportunity to uh, meet other pastors and to catch up with old friends as well. Um, it was a wonderful time. If you have your Bibles, please will you open with me to the book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 5, and I'm going to read now from verses 7 to 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Our Father, we have read of great and wonderful things in your word, a future that is coming for us, that it is wonderful beyond imagining, almost too good to be true, wonderful beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet, as we sit here in our chairs in this church in the middle of different circumstances of life, Lord, facing trials of various kinds. It's easy for the things of your word to be maybe dim in our hearts. The future that you are preparing to be dim. And so we need your help today, Lord. We pray that as we study your word, that the realities that are spoken of in this passage would be warm and bright in our hearts, that you would, through your word, inspire in us all for what you are doing and, and for your coming. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes to heaven now as we wait eagerly for you, we pray. Amen. Wallace Willis was an African-American lyricist born into slavery in Mississippi around 1820. He was forced to track across country from Mississippi to Oklahoma, a trail called the Trail of Tears with 300 other slaves when his owner was displaced from his plantation in Mississippi. In Oklahoma there, Willis worked the cotton fields from sunup to sundown every single day. He wrote songs known as Black spirituals, a type of American folk song closely associated with the experience of enslaved African Americans. Often the focus of these songs was on 
the escape that heaven would bring from difficult life conditions, unbearable life conditions. You know one of Willis's songs. It references the experience of Elijah the prophet who never died but was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me, coming forth to carry me home. If you get there before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming to, coming forth to carry me home. I'm sometimes up and sometimes down, but still my soul feels heavenly bound, coming forth to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. Not sure if that song was birthed in his heart as he mourned the death of fellow slaves on that long and terrible journey on the trail of tears, or if it was birthed in his heart as he toiled in the fields under the beating sun. But the doctrines of heaven and Christ's coming have tended to come to the fore in the songwriting of those who have suffered greatly in the history of the church. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. The words famously written by Horatio Spafford after the death by shipwreck of his four daughters. When times of great difficulty and sorrow come, especially when those times persist, when our trials seem unending, you have no choice but to carry on, but you're not sure if you can carry on. Scripture offers the only hope we have in Christ. And that's where James goes in our passage today. He's covered some of this ground already. The language of 5 verse 11 where he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast is very similar to 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James, at the end of this letter, is returning to the encouragement he had at the beginning as he begins to land the plane. It's clear that trials of various kinds have beset this tired group of Christians to whom he is writing. We saw the last time I preached in the last passage his prophetic blast against the rich who were oppressing poor Christians, cheating them of their wages and using power against them in corrupt courts. And the pressure that these Christians are facing and were facing seems to have led to internal strife and tension in the church. Like a person maybe who is chewed out by their boss at the workplace, maybe brings home that frustration, the turmoil, the anxiety of the workplace to take it out on their family, their spouse, or their children. So these Christians persecuted in the world are straining under that weight. And it seems growing impatient with one another. James wants to close this letter speaking again about the tongue, but in the positive sense, the positive ways that we are to address one another and become a refuge for one another in a difficult world. He'll speak about the importance of truthfulness and prayer, confession, forgiveness, and restoration in the body of Christ. But first, he gives one more call in this passage to endurance, what it looks like to have faith in our trials. 
three words today for those who endure persistent tribulation. And if this is you today, maybe you are tired by the trials of life that don't seem to be abating. May James pastor your heart today, I pray. Number one, the first word he says, establish. Establish your heart for his coming. In one section of his book, Desiring God, John Piper is urging the reader to stoke the fire of awe and worship, not to let the grand things that cause us to worship grow cold in our hearts. And he shares an experience that he had one night that did this for him, that stoked the fire of waiting for Christ's return. He says this, I was flying at night from Chicago to Minneapolis, almost alone on the plane. The pilot announced that there was a thunderstorm over Lake Michigan and into Wisconsin. He would skirt to the west to avoid turbulence. As I sat there staring out into total blackness, suddenly the whole sky was brilliant with light and a cavern of white clouds fell away four miles beneath the plain and then vanished. A second later, a mammoth White tunnel of light exploded from north to south across the horizon and again vanished into blackness. Soon the lightning was almost constant and volcanoes of light burst up out of cloud ravines and from distant, behind distant white mountains. I sat there shaking my head almost in unbelief. O oh Lord, if these are but the sparks from the sharpening of your swords, what will be the day of your appearing? And I remembered the word of Christ. As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Even now as I recollect that sight, the word glory is full of feeling for me. James speaks to suffering believers, wondering if they're able to go on. And his encouragement is this, the weight of trials is nothing compared to the weight of future glory. Verse 7 and 8, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is probably one of the first letters written in the New Testament, if not the first letter. And we see right from its beginnings, the church's motivation for endurance centered on the imminent return of Christ. There are about 300 references to the return of Christ in the New Testament. That on average is, is about one for every 13 verses. And James doesn't have to elaborate on it here. He assumes that they understand what he means. He assumes they're well taught that this is a familiar truth for them. So I ask you today, is it a familiar truth for you? The truth of Christ's return. There will be a day in the future when Christ will come back. He will return physically. He will return personally as he left, as he ascended into heaven. It will be visible and unmistakable, as we read in this verse, as lightning which illuminates the whole sky. He will come with power. He will come with the angels. And there will be a separation on that day. As we sang, Christ will gather His own into His presence, caught to meet Him in the air, transformed in the blink of an eye, made holy before Him. And He will judge the living and the dead 
The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will put an end to the suffering of his own. He will restore what sin is broken. The heavens and the earth will be made new. A place will be, he'll make a place where his righteousness will dwell forever as we dwell forever with him. And that place will, the book of Revelation says, have no need of sun or moon to give it light for the glory of God will be its light. We yearn and long for this day. And maybe if you are yearning for that day, but your difficulties drag on, you might be scratching your head saying, how can James say that it is at hand, that it is near when 2,000 years later, here we are still waiting? This is often what critics say of the New Testament and the New Testament authors, all of whom agree with James that it is coming soon, it is imminent. They say, clearly they must have got it wrong. In fact, Peter actually addresses this question, doesn't he? In 2 Peter chapter 3, he encourages and he warns. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow. He is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. As for the timing, the New Testament is clear. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour of His return. So the nearness language, the imminence language ought to be understood by us in this way, that Christ's death and His resurrection have ushered in the last days for us. We are living in the last days. The next event in salvation history is the return of Christ. It is certain. It is coming. It will be the fulfillment of all our hope. And every generation of the church is called to live with the focus and the urgency that His imminent coming gives. It can happen soon, just as your life can end in a moment, any moment. Whatever trials we're going through, whatever trials you are going through today are eclipsed by the call to holiness because He is coming and you will stand before Him. The call, the importance of the gospel, the importance of our commission, steadfastness and fruitfulness. Alec Matea in his commentary says this, if we wish to be New Testament believers and to think in terms of New Testament priorities, then the fact of this great advent, advent means His coming, the sure expectation of it and the desire not to be ashamed before Him at His coming should be in the forefront of our thoughts. So be patient, James says. Literally, be long-suffering. In verse 11, he says, remain steadfast. Literally, that word means to stay, to remain, to stand under. Remember the picture we saw a few months ago of the weightlifter straining under the bar. Be long-suffering, remain steadfast. He says in verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. In Palestine, the farmer was dependent upon the the rains that would come in late autumn and early spring, and he couldn't control the rains, couldn't speed it up any more than we can speed up the coming of Christ. He could only wait and pray that the rain would happen in the right season. 
and he could prepare the field and sow the seed faithfully. So that's what James is calling the church to. He's calling the suffering church to faithfulness and hope in the certain coming of the Lord, in the goodness of God and in his promise. As the prophet Hosea urged, Hosea 6 verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So do you hear James's call today? Establish your hearts, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That same verb, establish, we find in the book of Luke, in Luke 9.51, where it says this, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face, that's the same word, set, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so we see in Christ, in his example, the whole sense of what this word means, determination, steely resolve, persistence to do what God has called us to do. Remember that a, a big problem James is addressing in this letter is a divided heart, spiritual inconsistency. In the passage just prior, he spoke, remember, to the rich who, who live in constant self-indulgence. He said, those who are fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. He's calling the church to something else. F establish your hearts. Fix your heart, not on the world. Fix your heart, not on the trial, but on the harvest. Lift your eyes to the heavens from where the Lord will return. Establish your heart for the coming of Christ. Suffering has a way of testing our resolve, doesn't it? Causing us sometimes even to question the path that we are on. And for some, this is the sad reality, their sad conclusion. I've, I've given Jesus a try, but it doesn't seem to be working out for me. It doesn't seem to be doing anything for me. James would say, Jesus is not the magic formula you use to have your best life now. He is the reward. He's the one we are waiting for. And so you press on in your trial because you know that even through your trial, you can be close to him and know him. And we wait for the day where we will welcome him when he comes. We're longing for that day. We sang when we say, see Christ, our Savior. We behold the glory of our God, our King forever. Number one. Establish your hearts for his coming. Number two, guard your tongue against grumbling, James says. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes, in order to encourage Christians as they face temptation in the world, he's writing from the perspective of one demon to another demon, sort of a, a mentor demon to a mentee, to teaching this demon, the lower demon, how to tempt and steal and to... Um, to steal the joy of the patient, the newborn believer. And in the, one of the passages, the, the higher demon says this, One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy, but fortunately it is quite invisible to these humans. When your patient gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. 
You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Work hard then on the disappointment or the anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. C.S. Lewis was making a point. He well understood the, the pride that fills our hearts that gives us the inability to sense the log sometimes in our own eyes when we're straining our neck to see the speck in the eyes of those around us. And he knows the truth that if you live in the church long enough, you will inevitably be let down by the people around you. But if we are to be waiting patiently like a farmer for what God is doing in our lives, for his time frame in our lives, certainly we need to be patient with what he's doing in the lives of those around us. We love the truth that we are a work in progress. We love the truth that God is slowly bringing about fruit in our lives, but do we carry that same truth in our hearts in the way that we relate to our brothers and sisters in the church? Impatience can be compounded by suffering. In our trials, we want people to be patient with us and that we use our trials as an excuse for how we lash out at others and grumble against them, maybe gossip and complain. Trials can tend to bring out the worst in people. When life is stressful, full of worries and fears and frustrations, we sometimes take those out on those around us, those closest to us. What are you like after a bad day at the office? Do your children, does your spouse get the short end? Or how about when we are called to handle long-term illness? Poor health can lead to self-pity and short tempers. James's readers in this letter faced the pressure of persecution and the pressure of poverty, and they seem to be prone to impatience. We saw how he addressed the way that they spoke to one another, the quarrels that existed among them. He addressed the problems of bitter envy and selfish ambition in the church. Were there trials making them resentful, envious of those who seem to be receiving blessings from the Lord? relative peace in their lives. He says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When I was a teenager, I got into an argument with my mother. We had um, a number of arguments through my teenage years. And there is a line of respect that kids are not supposed to cross. I didn't just cross the line, I blew right past it and I said something to my mom that I I cannot repeat to you in the pulpit. I was locked in and I said it without thinking, but the moment that those words left my lips, my father's face, the image of my father's face filled my eyes and I knew I would be in trouble. Well, he overheard what I said. There are very few times where I can remember my dad being very, very angry with me. And this was one of those times. The judge is standing at the door, James says. The implication is clear. His coming is near. And he can hear every word that we say to and about one another. James is reminding us there will be a day, as Christ said, where we will give account. We will give account for every idle word. 
And when the judge who is right at the door finally knocks, he's asking this question, are you ready? Will you be ready to open for him? James presents to suffering believers then in this passage, Christ's return in two different lights, doesn't he? On the one hand, we see him coming to end our suffering, to end our pain. He comes in mercy and compassion. He will return in love for those he loves. But on the other hand, we see his coming means that the judge of all men is coming. And Luke 12 verse 3 says, Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. How terrifying is that? Why does it help the church to keep in balance the truth that Jesus comes both to rescue and to judge? Why is this message important for us today? Firstly, I think it's important because it's important that we know that the day of comfort for some will not be a day of comfort for all. It will be a day of mourning as well. Those who have stood in rebellion against this king will wish, the book of Revelation says, they will wish that the mountains could fall upon them to hide them from his presence. There are people, even in the church, who need this loving warning. Have you today truly repented and believed upon Christ to shelter you on the day when he comes? Or is your comfort a false one today? Secondly, I think the reason it's important is because the truth that he is judge and that his return is certain and imminent is a call to us to give urgent care to the way that we live our lives, what we say, what we value, what we prioritize, and what we pursue. Scripture is clear. For example, in the the parable, Jesus' parable of the talents, or in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about the way that we, what we build in this life will be tested by fire. Scripture is clear. What we are given and what we do with what we are given matters for eternity. So Dan Dorian in his commentary says this, Christians will not face God's wrath on judgment day. Christ Jesus has taken the wrath of God away from us through his death on the cross. Christians will not face God's wrath on judgment day, but we will face God's assessment of every word and every deed. We look forward in eager anticipation to receiving our kind and our merciful Savior on that day, to being gathered into His presence. It's appropriate to sing of the glory of that. But we know that He seeks as well to come and joy, commending as well as rescuing. We will welcome Him and we will give all glory to Him on that day. But this is the immensity of His grace, that He has enabled us to live our lives today in a way that matters for then. That we might actually hear On that day, well done, good and faithful servant. It is an unbelievable grace. Knowing he comes as judge as well, it it puts our trials into perspective, doesn't it? It helps us to take our eyes off of the wrongs that we have received. Those things that people have done to you. Knowing that Jesus is judge helps you for those moments. They will stand before God. And on that day, it's between them and God, but you need to understand that you will stand before Him as well. And my only hope on that day 
is to be found standing in Christ, leaning on Him, trusting in His work alone to save me and to hide me. And if my hope for that day is that I would be standing in Christ, I need to be careful, don't I? I want to be careful about how I speak about His bride. Do you grumble? Do you gossip about one for whom Christ is going to return in love? Do you malign the one for whom he even now is interceding, praying for, keeping? The Father hears everything that we say about one another. And he hears what Christ says about your brother and sister. Do your words contradict the words of Christ? Or do you echo what he says and speak in amen? Establish your heart for His coming. Number two, guard your tongue against grumbling. And finally, number three, James says, rest in His compassionate purpose. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James wants us to have our hearts established for that day, when Christ, who is our reward, will return for us, when His presence will satisfy us forever. And He wants us to be urgent today in the way that we use our lives and live and speak But he also wants to comfort us with the truth that even our suffering today is not outside of God's purposes, outside of his merciful and compassionate purposes. That our pain is not empty. It will not be wasted for his glory and our good. So he directs us to two illustrations in these closing verses to stir our hearts. The first, verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Why did the prophets suffer? I think James tells us, doesn't he? Because they spoke in the name of the Lord. Their suffering was for the cause that God gave them Being God's man and speaking on his behalf is what brought their trouble. One commentator puts it this way. Faithfulness to God's command so far from giving them immunity from suffering actually involved them in it. Their privilege and their trials went hand in hand. And that's a description of the Christian life. Privilege and trials go hand in hand. Think of any prophet in the Old Testament. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was hated for the message that he preached. He preached to his people, exile is coming, we're going into Babylon, it is inevitable, and what God is calling you to do is be repentant and to accept humbly the discipline of God. And they did not like him for that message. He was hunted down by men from his hometown who wanted to silence him. Ezekiel and Hosea, their very lives were used by God as object lessons to to back the message that they were preaching. God took Ezekiel's wife and God told him why. He said it would be the setting behind which he would proclaim his message. God told Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman and to be faithful to her because it was an object lesson, an illustration by message to the people of Israel who were being unfaithful to the Lord. King Ahab was an evil king in Israel. 
And in one story, he, he's calling for Jehoshaphat, who was the then king of Judah, to fight with him against the Syrians. And Jehoshaphat agreed, but he wanted first to hear from the Lord, a word from the Lord. So Ahab assembles all the false prophets he has in Israel around him, and they're all saying the same thing. Go into battle, for the Lord promises victory. And Jehoshaphat saw through their falsehood, and he asked, Isn't there a real prophet? Isn't there a prophet of Yahweh among you that we can ask? And Ahab got grumpy. He said, there is one, but I hate him. He always prophesies evil about me and never anything good. And so they summon this prophet, Micaiah. And the messenger who summons him says to him, please, for the love of mercy, the other guys are prophesying good. Can you not just join in and be amenable for once? And Micaiah says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I will speak. Well, he comes before Ahab, and he speaks sarcastically. He says, go, king, and triumph. The Lord will give it into your hand. He will give victory into your hand. Ahab knows he's being sarcastic, and so he says, please, tell me the truth. And Ahab does. He says, you will not survive the battle. In fact, God is looking for a way to end your life. And this is why all of this is happening. Micaiah was beaten and put in prison for telling the truth as he was asked to do. The calling comes with the promise of trials. You cannot live as God's man in the world and not face trials. But it comes as well with privilege and with blessing. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. It is a blessing, isn't it? To have the purpose of your life directly aligned with what God wants to do and wants to say in the world. The prophets remained steadfast because they knew no matter what trouble comes, because we are throwing a lot in with Yahweh, no matter what trouble comes, we cannot ultimately be put to shame. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. O Nebuchadnezzar, God can save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow to false gods. Micah, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. saying, you can put me in prison. His presence is all that I need. Habakkuk, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So think about the way that you speak, church. Think of your speech. Can we follow the prophets and see our trials not as a justification for grumbling and complaining, but as a platform in the world to make great the name of Christ? And James closes with the example of Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the, purposes, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. His purpose, even in your trial, is compassion and mercy. Now, it's an interesting example to use, isn't it, for James? To use Job as an example of steadfastness under suffering. You read the book of Job, you see that Job complained a whole lot, didn't he? 
He seems somewhat self-righteous even at times. He demands answers from God for his suffering. But Job is an example to us of steadfastness and great suffering in that everything that he does and everything that he said, despite his wife calling him a fool and saying, curse God and die, he refused to abandon faith. He clings to God. He says, I'm not taking my problems anywhere else. I'm taking them to the Lord because my hope is still in him. His complaint was, God's hand is heavy upon me, but he was steadfast in the truth that there is no stronger hand. And so I'll bring my complaint to him. Job 1.21, his response to the news of tragedy, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2.10, response to his wife, shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? Job 13.15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We will see him whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I think that's the point. It's the yearning in his suffering. Job was an example to us in our trials because he's an example of what it means to lament, to bring your needs to God. He relentlessly pursues God throughout the book. He has questions and he has complaints, but he takes them to God. He comes to the Lord for answers in his suffering. He comes like the psalmists do again and again. Why? How long, O Lord? And James says, we know that what was happening behind the scenes through all of this was compassionate and merciful purpose. Not just the material blessing at the end of the book of Job, but the very process, I believe, is what James is talking about. The very process of suffering and perseverance and clinging and the outcome of that lament, the outcome of the questions is fellowship with God and faith. We see at the end of the book of Job that God finally speaks to Job, fills Job's heart with reminder after reminder of the power and glory of God. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang for joy together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Question after question until finally Job says in chapter 42, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. My eye sees you. Matthias says this, It was the objective of God from the start. Above all, it was the enrichment of knowing God more fully. This is God's compassionate purpose in whatever you are facing today, that you would know Him more fully. Do you know Him? Have you repented like Job in dust and ashes and believed upon Him? And believer, should this not be a cause of rejoicing in our lives, that knowing the truth, no matter what trial I face today, that this is His purpose 
the knowledge of Him, that your heart would be driven closer to Him, that through suffering you would be driven to seek Him and to find Him in truth and know Him more fully. What a joy that that's at the end of our pain. The trial is not the end. It will be transformed when Christ is revealed in glory. Matthias says, and we'll close with these words, Behind all that God has ever done for us lies His heart of love. Behind His choice of us, His gift of His Son, the temporal and eternal blessings of His great salvation, His daily and nightly care for us, His provisions for body, mind, and soul, His presence day by day, and the hope of glory. What more do you need than the presence of God and the hope of glory? The wonder of the day of Christ's coming is that then the full content of that heart of love will come home and experience to the people of this great and tender-hearted God. Are you one of those people? If not today, let, that be, let today be the day. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we, before your presence, know that we can, do, we can rejoice in trial. Because even in our trial, we know that you are doing something glorious, that your purpose is merciful and compassionate, that it will mean your glory and ultimately our good. And yet, Lord, it is very difficult. It is so difficult day in and day out. And we know that even when tomorrow comes, we're going to be tempted towards complaint, tempted towards grumbling, tempted towards lashing out, tempted towards self-pity. Because sometimes, Lord, of your heavy hand upon our lives. So we pray that you would be merciful to us and gracious to us, even in giving us the, the strength that we need to endure. You call us to establish our hearts, and we would do that. We would follow our Lord and our Savior, and we look to His example, who went to the cross boldly, who went to the cross to fulfill the work that You gave Him. We would do it, Lord, but we need Your help, and so we ask for Your grace. And we thank You. We thank You that You give more grace. Make us humble, we pray. Amen.